Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. I will be reading Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 11. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, or the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Father, we stand before You, the One who has spoken these words about Yourself through your prophet. May we hear it more clearly and may we hear not only that reality of your sovereign grace, but of your grace which saves. And may we all say, saves us to the glory of the name above all names that you bestowed upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are taking a break from First Peter for this week because today we have now officially changed the name of our church to Sovereign Grace Fellowship, which we started discussing actually two years ago, then put it off for a while, and then did again. So this morning, this is what it's about. Why? That's what I want to do. Just explain the reasoning and why we have done it. There's two basic parts. The first is real fast, real simple. And just a, this is the reason that led us in our time, our culture, our space to make this decision. And then the rest of the sermon will be an explanation of that. So, why? The answer, that at its core, Sovereign Grace Fellowship represents more precisely who we are as a local church. And, this is what's another key to this, and the change of the name coincides with the building and the release of, which is coming in a week or two, our new website, now, which is not only a hub for you here at Sovereign Grace, and I mean more than the other website, I really want you to see if that's true or not when it comes out, okay? Meaning a place to go constantly and say, oh yeah, look at that, that got changed, that group is meeting over here now. And then there's a map, there's a calendar of events, when's that next potluck, when's that next picnic, when's the next parenting meeting. It's, it's a live website happening that way. Sermons. You're not here on Sunday or you heard the sermon and hear it again. You go click, click on your little iPhone, your little computer, and there it is on Monday. You can click it and in the second half it'll start playing or you can download. Suck it onto your iPod. And another thing on this, you just click at least there's one blog going now. We can have more blogs, but I'm going to have my Pastor Joe's blog talking to you writing devotionals, I read something on the internet, hear something clip, I think it's worthy, I may say that and clip it, and there you, you have your option to look at it, okay? So you'll be checking it out for that. Now, back to it again. Sovereign Grace Fellowship represents more precisely who we are and coincides with the website going to be released, and why is that important? Because that website is also an outreach. And in the Google world, there are buzzwords and buzz terms. We all know, if you've got a computer and you work on the Internet, that are important to people to find what you want to find. And so, over the last ten years, in American evangelicalism, 
there has been a, a shift happening. Many of us are happy about it, especially a lot of young people. But within the church, there have been people being, coming more and more hungry for straightforward biblical truth. Even Time magazine understood this and made it on one of their issues, the top ten things happening in America in general, was this new, what they would call a reformed movement. So in other words, there's been this fresh, revived movement within the church for solid, expositional, theological preaching, which when you wake up to history, realized was rediscovered 500 years ago in the Protestant Reformation. And so there are more and more people out there, we think, we don't, this is why we're making a change, but we think, it might be wise, more and more people out there who are looking, is there a church that will preach expositionally, let the text speak and not be afraid to preach that next text, in all of its theological depth on Sunday morning. And that means there are particular terms that many of these people, some of you, are in tune with, like, just to give you just a couple, the word reformed, the word or term, the doctrines of grace, the term Sovereign grace. So that if, if I moved to a new city and I'm looking for a church, one of the first things I would do was Google, would Google some of those terms like that. And I would come across our new website before I would look in a phone book and come across A for abundant grace. Because I'm looking for something, not just what's the first church to go to, something specific. And then I would look at our website. I would read our About Us page, our Core Value page. Do they mean it? I would listen to a sermon or two and say, do, when they say they're sovereign grace and they're loving the doctrines of grace, commit, oh, I hope that's true. That's how I would do it. Abundant grace in the Google world won't get me there like that. So, that's the reason. Sovereign grace, it unambiguously, at least more so, represents who we actually are. It's just more clear and easier to get to if you move into this city and you Google it. Now, the rest of the sermon is explanation. We have not actually changed since the planning of this church. We have always been, which is almost eight years ago, about sovereign grace. The sovereign grace of God saving persons. By sovereign, we mean there is nothing outside of God that pushes Him, moves Him, wills in such a way, sins, does anything outside of Him that causes God now to have to move or act in a way that He Himself did not originate or ordain. Abundant grace has always meant that for, for us here. We, by abundant grace, we've always meant that God's loving, sovereign, saving grace is deeper, more abundant than you probably ever dreamed than when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. But, abundant grace also is ambiguous enough to fill it in with all kinds of other meanings. It's imprecise enough for someone to say, yes, I believe in abundant grace. Tell me what you mean. And as they do, we here might say, well, when you say it that way, actually we don't think, we, we understand you're a Christian, we accept you as a Christian, but we don't, we don't really think that's the explanation of God's grace in saving the way you just put that. Okay, so it's a little bit more generic and you can fill it in with what you want. That is why from the get-go, we have always had at this church a subtitle. 
to our name. Loving the doctrines of grace. It's always been in our newspaper ad, on our former website, and on our banners outside. Abundant Grace Community Church, loving the doctrines of grace. And the reason is we, we have recognized there's people out there that are, that are believers and are hungry and have a sense of church history. And that phrase, the doctrines of grace, is a buzzword to say, hmm, I wonder if they really mean it. Because I'm looking for a place that really means that. They understand that 500 years ago in the 16th century, one of the biggest happenings in history called the Protestant Reformation was taking place. And out of that came, when we looked back, the end of the 1500s came the phrase referring to a core of what was happening, the doctrines of grace that are always there in the Bible, rediscovered and affirmed. That's why we've always had it there. So for us, the term on our websites, and on the banners, doctrines of grace clearly points to God's sovereign, undeserved, unconditional grace in actually saving particular people. So what we mean here now as sovereign grace is the biblical teaching of God saving people through Jesus Christ. What we mean in its core is this. In in a slow, deliberate contextual reading of the Bible and the New Testament in particular. That's what we mean by the doctrines of grace. God's sovereign grace over saving people. That's what Scripture reveals. Now, having said that, we're not dumb. We realize that 2,000 years ago is when Jesus went to the cross And that it didn't jump from Jesus to the Jesus movement of the 1960s and nothing happened in between. As you grow up in your Christianity, whether you like it or not, whether you like your own personal family or not, you have histories and roots. We have roots where lots of battles have been fought. You know what? Some of those people might have been smarter than you are or I am. But to at least understand the battles... And so what we're saying when we open the New Testament, we say, look at the Gospel. It's there. Let's believe it. We're not the first people to do that here. When I say first people, any of us alive today. Uh, St. Augustine, 1600 years ago, so beautifully laid out God's grace in saving people that, that he saw there in the Bible. And then... Another thousand years goes by and a lot of stuff happens. And the church in the Western world, in Europe, the Pope, the papacy, hierarchical structure, Christianity, the state in the Western world, are essentially one in the same. And by the time you get to the end of the Middle Ages, the Gospel is pretty much lost in the church. Thus, the need for getting back to it to reform the church. And that is what the term for us, the doctrines of grace, referring to God's sovereign grace means. And there are many people out there now who've come to realize that, to love that, to wake up and read some of those guys who are dead for 500 years as they're reading their Bible. So let's get more historical. Out of the 1500s, Protestant Reformation, reforming of the church, of course, Rome didn't want to get reformed, so you're out, and then that's where we get this so-called separate hundreds of communions out of it. Originally, they are saying, we don't want to leave leave the church, we want to reform. Because look at the Bible, the way you're explaining Salvation, justification, is wrong. Okay. 
Out of that, looking back towards the end of the 1500s, into the 1600s, the second generation would say, you want to put a, a big canopy of what was happening in this revolutionary uh, thing called the Reformation happening in Switzerland, in England, in Germany. Okay. You, what was happening, we can call them these five solas. Solas Latin for only or alone. These five alones, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is what we stand on. Christ alone saves through grace alone. You're justified by faith alone. All to the glory of God alone. So, buzzwords, who we are in sovereign grace and looking at ourselves now today in an historical situation, situation, I am saying, and I hope you're saying to those five, yes! And what we mean, and what the Reformers meant 500 years ago in their context by Scripture alone, does not mean you don't talk to your fellow Christian. This is what I see in the Scripture, and this is why. Okay, look at your Bible. Do you see that? It doesn't mean, nope, we can't talk about Christ, or I can't listen to a pastor preach, because then you would be not paying attention to Scripture anyway, because that's scriptural. It doesn't mean whether the guy's sitting next to you or, or the guy's been dead for a thousand years that you might not pay attention to this, what, what he's saying as he's looking at the same Bible you're looking at. Okay? That's not what Scripture alone means. Don't read other people. It has to do, and it did then, and it does now, with where is the final authority for all doctrine. In teaching. It's not in Pastor Joe. There's an authority of elders, because if you read the Bible and take it seriously, there it is. But ultimate authority over your conscience of what you believe in practice is the 66 books contained in the covers here. We call it the one book. That's what Bible means. Book in the book. As the final, ultimate with no peers, authority. And in their context, no peers of Pope or tradition. Because what the Reformers were referring to was what was going on. In the Roman Church, the ultimate infallible authority was twofold. Scripture and tradition. What the church has said about scripture and theology and practice. They're equal. Which meant, if you happen to be a priest, an Augustinian monk at that, named Martin Luther, and finally they just got to get you out of the monastery because you're driving everybody nuts and they send you to university and you end up getting your PhD and you're a pretty smart guy and you're teaching theology at the university and you're doing that for numbers of years and as you're working through the Psalms and you're reading in the Greek the book of Romans and you're, and you're reading Galatians and things in you are starting to go, huh, huh, huh. And you start to say, wait a minute. What the church is teaching about how you are getting saved Seems like Paul saying something different. Well, you can't do that because the church has already spoken about how you get justified. That's on an equal with Scripture. You, you don't have a right to say you got it wrong. That's why they're saying, no, you're wrong. We might have gotten it wrong. I've got stuff wrong right now in my, in my thinking. Pray for me that I'm open to reform because this is the final. I don't know what those things are, or I would not be wrong anymore, I hope. But this is the final authority. That's what they're saying. That's what we're saying. And there's something else in our day that, that, that I want to emphasize about who we are. And many of us are around the world right now that would love to put something like Sovereign Grace Fellowship up there and loving the doctrines of grace and understanding what happened with our brothers and sisters that went before us 500 years ago. 
And that is to say this, it's not enough merely in your official statement of faith to say, you should, and we do, we believe in the infallible, inerrant Word of God, referring to the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. It's not merely enough to say that, because the church over the last 30, 40 years has lots of churches saying it. But where the rubber meets the road is, do you act like you believe it? At least are trying to tend to believe it in the way you preach, in the way you allow the Scripture to dominate in the local church. Well, let me just quote from Dr. James Boyce, who right before he died his untimely death, ter- ten years ago, his last book came out, and he wrote, quote, It is possible to believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and yet to neglect it and effectually repudiate it just because we think that it is not sufficient for today's tasks and that other things need to be brought in to accomplish what is needed. This is exactly what many evangelicals and evangelical churches are doing. End quote. And so because what we're saying here, that Scripture alone is God's very words through men in varying context and ways of communicating it, Poetry, straightforward teaching in epistles, gospel, narrative. Pay attention to context. That's God speaking because that is what we believe. There's no better way to treat it as a, as a whole than expositionally. In expository preaching. Meaning, expose the text. Not merely read text, have a good thought and jump off Tell a few stories about how great of a husband you are and your children or whatever and people like you and go home and they, they really have not learned and, like, and heard what's written on the pages of Scripture coming through that grace of preaching. It just it, it happens easily and we're just very conscious of that and, never, and, and perfect preaching doesn't happen. But, but, but I, I remember one time I did not go to this church. It was a friend of mine. I went to another church and he was so excited because God was doing great things. He's just reading the Bible and he's loving the Bible. He's seeing all kinds of things in the Bible. And his pastor was going to start preaching on the book of James. And then first week, second week, fourth week, fifth week, he realized, as he pastor did go through passage after passage of James, and he realized he gave up because he was never really preaching on what James was saying. We're saying, God knew what He was doing. And when there's hard theology, God knew what He was doing. I don't need to hide it from you. We need to let God speak and save and sanctify and trouble and stir up us, the people. Scripture alone was the foundational principle upon which the Reformation was born. Of course, it coincided with the printing press, which meant you can print Bibles now, and people can actually read it. And Luther's, one of the first things he did was spend time hidden away so they wouldn't kill him in translating from the original, or I don't know, did he do the Latin or did he do the Greek? I think he did Greek and Hebrew into the German, the vernacular, so that people can read it. And you've got to understand, people didn't read a Bible, they didn't have a Bible. Okay, Scripture alone, which leads to Christ alone is what they're saying. We're saying it in the context, and we're saying it today. Christ, Jesus, His life, His death, alone saves. There is only one mediator between God and us sinful men and women. Christ Jesus. No pope. No priest. No anything else. Every believer is a priest, has immediate access to the Savior Jesus Christ who reconciles them to God. And we're saying the same thing today. 
Scripture alone, grace alone. Christ alone, through grace alone. Let me just comment on it. The Roman church back then and today don't believe you can be saved without grace. Even in their response to the Reformation called the Council of Trent in the late 1500s, they understood you can be saved without grace, but they denied that you're saved by grace alone. That you don't add anything to grace to make grace actually now work to save you. The Reformers are saying that's I don't think the Bible's teaching. I'm saying I think they're right. We're saying that here. Scripture alone is what teaches us of that. That it's Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. What in the world? In other words, the question that this sola, this only, is answering is this. How can sinners who objectively stand before the one true God as guilty with His wrath, Pure, holy, right, just wrath hanging over them. How can they move from out from under that into being, even now, as sinners, justified in His presence forever? Meaning, with their sin, which brings just wrath... That sin, that guilt objectively before the bar, the the legal bar of God, removed. And not only that, God, as if you were born as the Son of Mary, pure, true human being, live in pure, true humanity, sinlessly, and perfectly glorifying God. Only one man ever did that. Jesus. And He looks at you just like He looks at His Son. Because He's clothed. How does that happen though? Is that every human being? The Bible says it's not. That justification comes through faith. Alone. Not faith plus sacraments. Not faith plus works. Not faith plus the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through you. That comes by your heart of faith. Now, reformers love clarity. And so unlike our atmosphere of American Christianity with a watered down idea of what is faith that brings that justification, that salvation, they unfolded it. That's what we mean by faith alone. They saw it as one thing, which it is. Faith. What must I do to be saved? Believe. That's the same word as faith. That's the verb of faith. Trust in Jesus. And they meant, yes, it's one thing. It's one pie cut into three parts. But the faith, the saving faith, is not one piece of pie, nor two. It's all. And they did a lot of theology during the Middle Ages and then even in the Reformation in Latin. And they said these three pieces of pie, they are notitia, they are ascensus, they are fiducia. Okay, English. They are knowledge. They are mental assent. They are, well, it's hard to do it in English. Eating it. Embracing it. So in other words, what they're saying, and I think what the Bible teaches, what is the nature of saving faith? Well, you cannot be saved without hearing the gospel. And it means knowledge. There's that first piece of pie. You've got to have knowledge. The, the, the gospel is good news. There's news. What's the news? Well, there's things that are said about the person, the life, the substitutionary sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, hear it, believe, and you will be safe. That's information, that's news. A person will not be justified or saved from their sin without the knowledge. There is no salvation apart from that head knowledge. It's a first piece of pie. See, but, see, if you only have knowledge, yes, 
I understand what Christianity teaches. I, I, I've read Paul. I've read Jesus. I've read the Gospels. I, I understand what they believe. Well, just knowing the Gospel intellectually doesn't save you. You need the second piece, which is assent, mental assent, agreement. Say, yes! Not only... I, I, that, I, I understand. I got knowledge what it is. I agree. That's true. Jesus is the only Savior for sins. I had those first two pieces of the pie since I was conscious up until age 19. As far as I remember back being raised in a religious home and teenagers listened to it. Of course. I knew, with knowledge, the basic gospel, that God became a human being. He died for the sins of the world. And He was bodily resurrected from the dead. And I agreed with it. But I was unsaved. I was not a Christian. Because I didn't have the third piece. The pie. I had the first two, just like Satan and demons do. Trust me, they know the gospel and they agree it's true. The third piece, the fiducia, is when it's just—it's almost so hard to explain. It was true yesterday, and today. It's true. It's good. I partake. It's like kids, if your mom's making some pasta, you got knowledge of it. She told you. You actually walked in the kitchen and you see her making it. Got a piece of the pie knowledge. Okay, you got knowledge. You've been told she makes pasta. What do you think about it? Think it's true? Oh, yeah, you got two pieces. I agree that she's making it. Okay, why don't you come and eat it? In other words, do you like it? I'm not eating it. I can't stand it. That's fiducia. Fiducia would be, I'm going to eat it. I love it. It's delicious too. Saving faith. That's what it is. It's only one pie. Protect, especially in our generation of the church in America, against a watered-down idea. Come on! Look! She's making pasta! Agree! Go to the back room. Give you a Bible. You're saved. You're going to heaven. And that's what many people think, even 30 years down the road. They know Jesus from the hole in the wall. They've never have partaken. And those four all lead to the final sola, to the glory of God. The core of, of the Apostle Paul, of God's Word, of God speaking, in the letters of the Apostle Paul, there is this refrain, and you hear it directly in Paul a few times in the letter. There is therefore now no place for boasting. Christian, it's gone. But wait a minute, Paul. Are you sure about that? I mean, I sat down next to my brother or my buddy as a teenager, as an adult, and we heard in that service the same gospel, and he remains unchanged. I became a Christian. So, come on, Paul. At least, okay, he was choosing to not get it. That that's the greatest news possible. And I see it as the greatest news possible. And I have embraced Christ. So, don't tell me I have nothing to boast about. I did do that. Paul wouldn't deny that you did that, but he would deny, and so would the way Jesus speaks in the Gospels, you are misunderstanding what and how it actually happened to you. If we get it, 
the Reformers are saying. And we're saying here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, if we get it and believe it, we would realize there is nothing left to say except, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or, or who has become His counselor? Or who has given to God anything that God should repay Him back again? Implication, absolutely. No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Sola. To Him be glory forever and ever. In that high note of doxology that we just read right there from Paul comes at the very end of the most thorough treatment of the Gospel. Here's to here's say the same thing. That comes at the end of the most Thorough treatment of the doctrines of grace that are in the Bible. Romans chapter 1 through 11. And so when we say we are sovereign grace fellowship, or we love the doctrines of grace, we mean get the following five aspects of understanding the gospel right. First, get right the nature of humanity now. Or slash, get your doctrine, understanding of sin right. It's crucial. We're saying in, as Paul does in Romans 5, in Adam all have sinned. We're saying what happened to Adam and that race made in God's image, humanity, is that it all has fallen into spiritual death. So that my mom and dad and I and my six kids are all born into sin. Born may I say, conceived as sinners. And that sin doesn't refer to merely the propensity to sin. It refers to the depth of sin in the very nature of each soul. We are sinners not because (laughs) He sinned, We sin because we are, by nature, sinners. We say it this way, naturally now, since the fall, have no fiducia. We we can know what's being cooked. And agree that it's being cooked, but we can't enjoy eating. This is the doctrine of sin. By nature, Joe LeMay, born into this world, could no more delight in God or cherish Jesus Christ any more than this guy whom you know hates fish in general could desire to eat a dead, smelly fish head. The way that the Apostle Paul puts it is like this in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's his smelly fish head theology. Verse 1. And you were... Now, he's talking to... Okay, let's just use me for a minute. Okay, Joe, you love... I do. You saved me. I love the Gospel. Okay. You were... Past tense. This is how you were before this, Joe. You were dead. You were. You were dead. You were dead. 
You were dead in your trespasses and your sin, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of God's wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. Okay, stop for a minute. Therefore, what Paul's saying here, you could preach to Joe LeMay until you're blue in the face the truth of the gospel. And you should. And he needs to hear it. But I will not eat the chocolate cream pie of the gospel. Why? Is it because the chocolate cream pie objectively isn't good? It's not the problem. The problem is me. I won't and I did not eat the chocolate cream pie of the gospel because of the very nature of sin distorted the eyes of my heart and it only saw that chocolate cream pie as smelly dead fish heads. Get the doctrine of sin right. That's what we mean here. Which leads to the second thing. When we get that right, when we understand that I'm eating chocolate cream pie, you realize God's grace is deeper than you ever imagined. I've come to taste and see that the Lord is good to me only because God's grace changed the taste buds of my heart. That's why I'm still in Ephesians 2. The very next word now, where I left off, is the word but. Okay, there it is. That's who you were, Joe. This is your nature. But he's talking to Christians. But God. But God acted. Quote, But God being rich in mercy. Why? Because of how good you are. He doesn't say that. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Loved us unfathomably. Loved us even when we were dead. In our trespasses and sins. With that love, but God, here it is, here's the verb, made us alive together with Christ. And all we know is we're eating chocolate cream pie. All, all, all I knew is that age 19 is <sighs> nothing changed intellectually, my life changed in my heart. This is really true and meaningful to me who is purposeless and dying and wrought with the consciousness of my guilt and my sin in a way I never was. Oh, it's chocolate cream pie. Or we know how Peter says it in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, this is what the whole pie of faith is. Though you don't, you don't see Jesus now. More than knowing and more than the green, you love chocolate cream pie. You love Him. You rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with gore. And so that's what happens to us people. We don't know really what's happening other than God's mercy shined. And boy, do we love Jesus. And then you find out God didn't strike you dead the next week, you're still alive. And the next year, and the next year, and you're going to church, and you're fellowship, and you've got a Bible, and you're reading it. And, and then we read our Bible about what God says, how it happened. For instance, we hear Jesus say stuff like this. 
in John 6, 44. Here's Joe. Eat, eating chocolate cream pie. It's good. <laughs> I, I have come to you, Jesus. I'm so happy I've come to you. I'm so happy you've saved me. And then he says, no one, including you, Joe, no one can come to me. But I came to you. Yeah, he's not done. You, Joe, nor anybody else can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, grabs him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or the way the Apostle Paul put it. Here's the missionary. He's got the message. It's the Gospel. And he goes from place to place and he proclaims it knowing no one will be saved without hearing it. And he says, Corinthians, chapter 1 of Corinthians, we preach We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews we preach it to. And then to everybody else who is not a Jew, the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But, well, you just covered everyone, Paul. I know. But, to those who are called from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. From out of them, God calls some. To them in our preaching, what happens is this. Christ becomes chocolate cream pie and not dead smelly fish heads of foolishness and a stumbling block. But to those who are called from among Jews and from among the Gentiles, Christ to them, the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so we, we're saying, get the understanding that the Bible gives us about sin right, and you'll understand God's grace more truly and purely, which leads to amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm I'm found. I was blind. And then, boom, I see. And you realize the atonement of Jesus is deeper, wider than you ever dreamed it was. You start to see text that didn't make sense to you before. And you realize that at the cross, at the cross, oh my goodness, He did not only make it possible for a fairly stupid, lost, hard-hearted Joe LeMay to save himself if he could somehow change his heart to a heart of faith you realize that He purchased me. He he purchased the miracle of new birth, of a new heart, or as the prophets say in the Old Covenant, about the New Covenant. He purchased a heart of flesh. He said, I, God, will put within you a heart of flesh. You realize Jesus not only wiped away sin, lived my perfect righteousness on my behalf, but He purchased what I so desperately needed. God's Spirit changed my heart to see God in salvation through Christ for who He truly is as the delicious chocolate cream. Why? Oh, what a cross. When those things, as we read the Bible, just take it seriously. Struggle through them. The implications go deep. And just basically one of them is this. Text 
that you would read over and you realize they just didn't make sense, you start to realize, I can actually take those texts in the Scripture for what they seem to plainly say. The, the reason I say it the way, I mean, my experience, I'm no more Christian today than I was in 1981 when He called me and brought me to Himself. And I remember reading numbers of texts in the New Testament, in much less the Old Testament, that just, I, re- I thought, strange, I know it can't mean that. And just read on. I think there's some deeper meaning behind that that maybe someday I'll wrestle with. But they can't mean what that seems to Because that just does not fit with my presuppositions about humanity, about sin, about God, about grace, about the way things ought to be. So what do I mean is this. It leads to that fourth point. You start to read texts like the following and take them at face value. It always bothered me. Paul preaches down by the river, the gospel over there by Philippi. And why does he have to add, why does Luke make say it this way, who's, who's with Paul? And the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she can hear the things spoken by Paul. I just... It, I, They're all listening. Why does he say that? Doesn't he open everybody's heart equally? That's why that always bothered me. God is sovereign in His grace. It doesn't bother me anymore. I just believe it. Or when you read in Acts 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. It just bugged me. It doesn't bug me anymore. He does not say, and those who believed, them God went ahead and appointed to eternal life. It doesn't say that. It says, those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Those are the ones that believed. In John 10.26, Jesus says, But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He didn't say, Because you're not part of my sheep, my flock. That's the reason you don't believe. Or excuse me, let me turn that around. That is what he says. He doesn't say, the reason you're not part of my flock is because you don't believe. He says, the reason that you do not believe is because you are not part of my flock. And then there's the stunningly God-centered words of Romans chapter 9 verses 11 to 16. Referring to Jacob and Esau born of one woman though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Period. As it is written, Jacob I love. But Esau, I hated him. Paul, you better hide. What does Paul think is the response, even of Christians, that he's writing to might be? Just read the next word. What shall we say then? 
Is there injustice? Because Paul knows that's what they're going to say. Is there injustice on God's part? His answer is no. By no means. For He, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on the fastest runners, on the smartest people, on those who morally reform themselves enough to be holy enough to understand that the gospel is true. Paul turns to the books of Moses and says, it's right there. I, God, will have mercy on whom, okay, who are they? On whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, Paul, come on. Give me a conclusion. Here it is. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, ultimately, but on God who has mercy. You start to read passages like that and just read them again. Read them carefully. Happily to read them in the original languages if you want. Struggle through it. Look at the syntax. What is he saying? And then, by grace, we might come to skip what was very scary to us at first. And it leads to this final thing. Get it right because this is precious valuable, important food for the sheep. That, see those first four points? If God, therefore in the fifth one, if He called you, now just say it this way, hey, does anybody in here want to be saved if you're not? Well then you can believe. Believe! Know, agree, and eat the pie of Christ is your delight. You will be saved. Now, is that you? Then He did it. And therefore, you will never lose it. You've been Christian long enough to know that life's still filled with pain, tragedy, hardship, Externally, internally in your soul? Christian, cling. Cling to the doctrines of grace. In other words, cling to the work of Christ on the cross. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Rest in Him. Rest on it. The way the Apostle Paul sums all of this up is Romans 8, 28-30 when he writes, And Christian, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why can we believe that precious verse that has been so valuable to until millions of us believers through the centuries. Because the next word is for. Meaning, here's the foundation of it. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And don't miss it. The Son who is the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom He predestined, those are the ones He called to saving faith. Oh, I say I added that there. Why? Because those whom He called, not some of them, all of them, those whom He called, He also justified. And we know there's no justification apart from faith. I know, that's me! <laughs> and there's a battle going on in your life. So cling to it. And those whom He justified, get it, He also glorified. 
He puts it as if a past tense. He means the future. There's a judgment day coming. You're going to see your name written in the land's book of life, which was there before the foundation of the world. And you're going to be resurrected as one of the just, glorified with Christ. No dropouts. Do you love Him? Get it. You'll make it. Because He is saving you. When we say here, we love the doctrines of grace. We mean, we love the gospel of Christ and what He actually did and told us He did in Scripture. That's what we mean by His sovereign grace. Finally, shortly, by fellowship. You say, we can, we can put numbers of different things there. What we want to communicate by that word, sovereign grace, fellowship, is that as much as we believe in exposition of Scripture, as much as, if you get tired of me saying, please look at your text and see the word because, think about the connections. That's how God gave it. As much as I would do that, you think, well, that's really intellectual. Okay, I can't help it. I mean, reading by definition is an intellectual task. Let's just do it well. Or, and, and, and we may try to delve, delve into hard theological problems. This is a church. This is the body of Christ, is what we're saying. This is not a seminary classroom where we just love theology for theology's sake. We don't see understanding the gospel of grace and the doctrines of grace. And I can give you a list of 50 different theological topics as an end. They're not, they're only a means. That the means God gave, but a means to the end of what is the end, and that is worshiping the one true God. That's why. Vertical. And when that's happening, if we pay attention to Scripture, it brings, and Paul uses this term in Greek, koinonia, translated fellowship. There is a bonding with all believers, and then more particularly in local churches, local expression, where the Christian life in loving the doctrines of grace is not lived solely in your mind and alone, but in community, in fellowship. The Christian battle of faith is lived out like Hebrews chapter 3, verse, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But instead, encourage one another day by day. This is the spiritual fellowship. The Apostle Paul's talking. We want to communicate. We believe in the family of Christ. The family atmosphere. That The more we grow, we, we might have to grow into letting people get in and know us. Because we care for our own soul to be rebuked when it needs to be, to make ourselves vulnerable, to grow, to hold the other accountable, and to be held accountable. We're saying by fellowship we believe in the body of Christ. We believe in here or there or over on that church over yonder. If you're there, are you there? Do you want a covenant? Are you saying, it's just me and Christ and I kind of hang out at church once in a while? Or do you believe what the gospel teaches about the body of Christ? And then you want to become a member. And say, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. It's where God put me. I'll covenant with you. Koinonia, fellowship, expresses that well. We are now. Sovereign grace. Fellowship. So when I say abundant grace, correct me. 
over the next few months. Let's pray. Father, my my pleading for the mercy of Your Holy Spirit to fall upon us who are here, those listening on iPod or the Internet, is that You summed up this way what I've tried to say. Cause us to see what You're saying about the treasure in the field of the gospel. May we see it in Scripture more and more clearly to the glorification of Your name and to the drawing close of our affections towards You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand if you can.